Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from the third Sunday of Lent. During this Lent season, Pastor David Cartwright is doing a sermon series on how we as Christians are called to be in this world, but not a part of it. This concept is often repeated in the church today, but it's not necessarily easy to live out. In this week's message, Pastor Cartwright explores how we can keep the Spirit of God even while existing in this world. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Would you please open your text to Romans chapter 8? We're going to begin our journey there today, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, in these moments, may our hearts and our minds be open and attentive to you. I pray in your mercy, Father, that your Holy Spirit would empower me to speak words of your truth, to speak them with clarity, in simplicity, so that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we receive and experience now, we offer only to you the praise and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. From time to time, a preacher gets the sense in taking the pulpit that the upcoming message will not go down in the history of the congregation as one of the favorites. I kind of get that sense today. And I feel a little bit of a disclaimer is necessary before we even begin because I, I realize that in this message it could very well be perceived as... Um, a proclamation of self-righteousness 
coming from the one who is sharing it. If you at any point get the sense that that's what's going on, please know that that is the furthest thing from the truth because this text steps on everybody's toes and it steps on mine as much as anybody else. So please understand that this is simply a message from the heart of one who feels appointed and called to bring all of us to what the truth of Scripture says to us. As we've journeyed into this season of Lent, we are on this brief journey of thinking about what it means that, that and you've, again, we hear that familiar phrase for the Christian that we are called to be in the world but not of the world. We began the journey in Ephesians chapter 2 looking at that great transformation that God does with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, last week we talked about being ambassadors because to be in the world but not of the world does require us to be in the world. We are sent with a purpose to represent Christ to the world. But now we come to the other part of that and we have to look at the reality for the Christian that even though we are in the world, we are not of the world. And we kind of use this text from Romans as a foundation for that. Paul brings us to the 8th chapter of Romans, and maybe just some uh, backdrop will be helpful as we start. Paul, in, in the book of Romans, is asking a big question, and maybe the, the most overarching question that Paul addresses in Romans is, how does God bring salvation to the people of this world? How is salvation wrought, how is redemption, reconciliation with God accomplished for humanity? And there's a secondary question that is answered with that, and that secondary question is, uh, does God take a different approach with the Jew and the Gentile? Does God deal with one of those people groups in a different way that he deals with the other people group? And so he kind of answers both of those questions together, and he comes to this point, and, and everything that has been happening in, in, first, in the first seven chapters of Romans builds up to this point that God does not deal with either of the groups in a different way, that salvation, whether it's by, for the Jew or for the Gentile, comes through the person of Jesus Christ by faith, and what God accomplishes in that is a perfect reconciliation in which, for the person who is in Christ, there is no more condemnation. You see, Romans chapter 8 starts with this wonderful news. But as it's often been said, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. And we have to look and remember what the bad news was first. Because we are people of good news, but we remember that it was bad news first. So what Paul is doing, is doing in these first verses of Romans is that he is reminding us that God has brought a judgment against sin, he's brought an answer for it, and he's also put a calling upon the people who have received the blessing of Christ. So let's just kind of look again briefly at what Paul does. Uh, he starts off with those wonderful words, there are no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 2 he says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
Paul likes to use that word law because he's been talking about law a lot. And so he kind of keeps that same term flowing through the text. When he's talking about law, mostly he's talking about the Mosaic law. That law that was given to those Jewish people that gave them the covenant by which they established their relationship with God. And so he continues to use that word. When you read verse 2 there, you could probably just as easy substitute maybe the word work for the word law. So it might be the work of uh, the spirit of life versus the work of the law of sin and death. Or you could use the word paradigm. Basically, Paul is saying there's two modes of operation that stand in contrast to one another. There's the way that the spirit works to bring life, and there was the way that that the law worked that bound us to sin and death. And he goes on from that and says in verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin so that he condemned sin in the flesh. So that's the judgment. Paul looks and realizes that God, God looked down at the human condition and judged it. What was the human condition? Brokenness. Sin, fallen from the perfection of God. And God looked at that human condition, he looked at the sinfulness, and he condemned it. He condemns the sin. So there's a judgment against what God found in our human condition. The beautiful thing about it is that God not only condemned the sin, he gave us an answer for it in the person of Jesus Christ. So God does not, and that's why you could go to a text like John chapter 3, and we we remember that beautiful John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? And then you remember the text that comes after that in verse 17, right? Don't you? For God does not send the, the son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. Okay, so he sent Jesus, yes, there's a condemnation again, sin, but he didn't send Jesus down to say, you know, you're all sinful, God's just going to wipe you out in the story. He sent Jesus so that we might have an answer, so that there might be a redemption for us in our sinful state. And when Paul talks about the, 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 what the law could not do because it was weak, he realizes that, and, and please look back. There's so much I want to say this morning, and I know you want to go eat lunch at some point. So I'm really trying hard, trying hard not to get bogged down. You have to remember that in Paul's mind, there was nothing wrong with the law. The law, what, the law did what the law was given to do. Go back to Romans 7, read from verse 7 going forward. The law was good, the law was perfect, but it was not intended to make anybody else perfect. It was only intended to reveal to us the brokenness of the human condition and the holiness of God. It gave us a mirror by which we could see ourselves and a lens through which we could perceive the holiness of God. That's what the law did for us. And we use analogies to help understand that. So often I use this analogy. It's like a mirror. Okay, did you look in the mirror this morning? You know what a mirror does? It shows you what you look like. You know what the mirror can't do? Fix what you look like. <laughs> that takes something else. Okay, the law is like a mirror. It, it, it shows us what we look like. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say it's like a mirror with interpretive commentary. Because you might look in a mirror and your hair's sticking out all over the place. That's what the mirror shows you. You might think, hey, it's going to be great if I go out in public with my hair sticking out all over the place. A mirror with interpretive commentary would go, whoa, stop. Uh-uh, that's, that's not what you want to do. It reveals to us. Or you could put it another way. You see, what the law suffers is, is the same inability as a thermometer suffers. Do you know what a thermometer does? It tells you how hot or cold it is, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, you all looked out and, and you found that it was what? Like zero. <laughs> or minus numbers. <laughs> Your thermometer went, whoo, it's cold. But you know what your thermometer couldn't do? It, it couldn't address the problem, could it? You see, this is where a thermometer is different than a thermostat because a thermostat is hooked to a device that has the power and, and the ability to affect change. The law was just like a thermometer. All it could do is tell you hot, cold. It can tell you the condition, but it can't do anything about it. And that's the beautiful difference between the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the Holy Spirit of God comes and the Holy Spirit says, I can do something about it. God gave us an answer when he gave us the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and then follows it up with the Holy Spirit to indwell us to say, I can make a change in this sinful, broken condition in which you find yourself. And for the Christian, this puts us in the position of saying, there is an old and a new. There is my old broken self, and there is this new redeemed self to which God is calling me. And that's where Paul goes, where he goes on in verse 4, uh, after saying that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And I want to pause, because it's just too beautiful to pass up. The righteous requirement of the law requires... A payment for sin. You've heard the stories recently of people who got electric bills for like 9000 or more dollars for one week's worth of electricity. Have you heard those news stories? Can you picture your reaction? It, now, look, I know there are some of you out there that would be able to pay that. You wouldn't want to. But you might have the resources to tap into and actually pay that, but can you put yourself in the position of somebody looking at a bill like that and going, I can't pay that. There, you just have to turn my power off. I couldn't pay that. You see, that, that starts to get at, if you will, our condition before God. When we look at our sinful condition and God says there has to be a payment for that, it would be like getting a $9,000 bill for one week's worth of power. You'd say, I can't pay that. In fact, to really get at the sacrifice that Christ made for us, you would have to multiply that $9,000 figure exponentially. And that might start to tell you what a great sacrifice Jesus made for us. It is that kind of magnitude that God said, I'm going to give my son to cover the sinfulness of humanity. You can't pay the bill. 
but I'll pay it for you to satisfy the requirement of the law. But for those who are in Christ, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. And Paul goes on in the second part of verse 4 to describe those people, you and me, as people who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's the great contrast. These are two things that are set up to, to, be, to be understood, to be in contradiction with one another. You can do one you can do the other, but you can't do both. When I was young, does anybody want to guess what my sport of preference was? It's basketball. I'll, I'll just tell you. I, I was crazy about basketball. And I was actually pretty good a long time ago. I played basketball every chance I got. When, you know, growing up through my years, and my dad was a wonderful encourager and a wonderful coach, and he would, he would consistently work with me. He'd be giving me this advice, you know, do this, do that, you know, work on your technique. And, and, and I remember one time in particular that he, my dad was, he was giving me some instruction, and when you find yourself in this situation on the court, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. I said, okay. So I went out in the game. And I found myself in the, in the middle of that situation. And you know what I did? Something completely different. And I went home after the game and my dad was just, why didn't you, why didn't you follow what I was instructing you to do? And you know what I said to him? I said, my coach told me to do something different. I mean, completely different. I could give you more detail, and, and the whole thing would become more clear as to the whole dynamic that was going on, but it's enough to just say what my coach was telling me was in stark contrast to what my dad was telling me. I could, I could obey my coach, or I could obey my dad. But you know what I couldn't do? I couldn't follow the instruction of both of them. Do you understand that that's exactly what Paul is laying out here? When he talks about Christians and describes them as people who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You can do one, or you can do the other, but you can't do both. What are we talking about when we talk about the flesh? And, and we read the rest of these verses. Paul goes on in verse 5. You know, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. The mind set on the flesh is dead, is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, nor is it even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Boy, I mean, those words just really need to stick in our minds. Turn, if you would, over to the book of Galatians. Go ahead. I know your Bibles are still open. You wouldn't close them as I'm preaching. You know better than that. Turn over to the book of Galatians, just a little bit further over in your New Testament. You're going to find so much that Galatians and Romans really are very much the same kind of work. 
Romans is just a, a lot more developed in its, in its thought. Um, and and I, you know, to that end, I, I want to say also that when I share these things, I mean, this morning especially, it is not just taking one little verse or passage of Scripture that stands really without support from Scripture as a whole. What I'm sharing with you, you, you can find supported you know, in, one, in, in so many different places of Scripture. So it's not just me picking some verses. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, uh, and I want to read this from verse 16 just so you can hear how, how this also affirms the same kind of thing. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do those things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And in verse 19, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evidence, are evident. And as he begins this, let me just say, that this list is meant to illustrate. It is meant to be an illustrative or illustrative, however you want to say it, kind of list. It is not exhaustive. It is not a list where you can go down and say, well, I don't hit that one, and, and I missed that one, and I missed that one, and so you can get to the end of the, and go, well, that's it. You know, I've excused myself from all of those things. It is not meant to be an exhaustive list. It is supposed to paint a picture for us. Okay, so let's see what this picture is. And I know, I know, and see, this is why this is going to be one of those really unpopular messages for our world today. Because there are people who are going to say, you're just wanting to talk about our sexuality, aren't you? Yes, and a whole lot more. Yes, and a whole lot more. Let's see what Paul lists. And I'll also say that as you read in your Bible translation, in these words, there's going to be some real variations in, in, the, in the language that is used. Um, and I don't want to take time to really do an exegesis of all of this, but let's just help get a picture in our mind. Paul mentions here immorality in verse 19. That's the first word in my translation King James I think would say adultery which is a very targeted word and that's a good interpretation of it that's a good translation the next word I find is impurity which is a very broad term and it talks about all kinds of different sexual uh, sexual sins so it's a very broad category sensualities and then he moves on in verse 22 idolatry, and then sorcery. Some translations actually may say witchcraft there, right? And you'll think, well, that sounds kind of odd. Um, I would like to take a few minutes to give you some New Testament background on that. Those, those two things where it talks about idolatry and either sorcery or witchcraft, they're, they're very closely related to some practices that were going on at that time. But basically, it's anything that you're putting up there as a God and you're trusting in that to, to affect a positive outcome in your life. He um, goes on and, uh, okay, so you're sitting down. Enmities. 
strife, jealousy. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Outbursts of anger. I don't hear anybody saying amen. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. It's actually a very broad list. And the commonality of it all is that they are things that spring from the human condition naturally. It seems in our world today, it seems in our culture, that we as Christians make a terrible error, and we do so so consistently. We appeal to our nature as if we are appealing to what God has approved. And you could talk about it whether it's our sexuality, our temperament, our habits, our tendencies. We appeal to it by saying, this is just the way I am. And we say that as if we are appealing to what God has accomplished. Like, God has made me this way. No, sin has made you that way. The fallen nature is what has accomplished that. I, I put it in very everyday terms because I've heard it before. Well, you know, I just... I just have a sharp tongue. That's the way I am. No, that's what sin has done to you. The Holy Spirit will take some sandpaper to that tongue. Well, I just, I just have a hot temper. That's just the way I am. Well, the Holy Spirit will put some cold water on that hot temper. You see, there's a reason why Paul can follow this list by things that he called the fruit of the Spirit. The produce of the Holy Spirit who works in somebody to, who, who produces things like patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. There is a real contrast to what the Holy Spirit does in us versus what comes, at, comes out of us naturally. And we, we have to stop excusing things that do not line up with righteousness by appealing to nature. I told you this wasn't going to be a popular sermon. But you see, what God has done is called us to holiness. 
to alignment with the person of Jesus Christ. He has called us to reflect his personhood, his righteousness, his holiness. And the only prayer that we have of doing that is by allowing ourselves to be subject to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 and in so many other places that if you align yourself, if you open yourself to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit do this, this is possible. It is possible to walk in righteousness. It is possible to change, to be transformed in our inner being. But we cannot expect to be doing that and doing it consistently if we want to appeal to our broken nature. We're either going to be obedient to one or we're going to be obedient to the other, but we will not be consistently obedient to both. Now, I know there is a consideration that needs to be mentioned this morning because I can already hear in your minds, and maybe even under your breath, well, I don't know how some of this aligns with the whole idea of Christ's love for us. Because we know that God loves us, right? And we know that Jesus had this overwhelming, compelling love for humanity that he expressed over and over again. And so how do we, how do we take this, this call to righteousness that pierces so deeply within our human condition and align it with the reality that just this, we have this God who loves and he loves and he loves and he loves and he loves. You have to put those two things together. How many times have you said or how many times have you heard Jesus loves me just the way I am. Or God, God loves me just the way that I am. Is that true? Let me help you out because I know you're thinking, that's a trick question, I'm not going to answer. Yes, it's true. Thank God. Thank God. You, you may be hearing me say, well, gosh, pastor, you went through that list. I mean, you know, immoralities and, and jealousy and strife and anger. And, and, I mean, are you telling me that if I'm guilty of any of these things that I can't get into heaven? Holy cow. If that were true, we might as well just go home. These things are not given to us in the New Testament to tell us that if we have ever committed or if we ever commit these things that we don't have a prayer of getting into heaven. That's why grace is there. What these are the, what, the reason these are here is to show us that the practice of these things don't align with the kingdom of God. They are two contrasting things. And we cannot pretend to be agents of the kingdom of God when we consistently give ourselves to align with things that don't align with the kingdom of God. God loves me just the way I am. That's true. 
And I've heard this, I've heard this line of interpretation looking at the Gospels, looking at the ministry of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you with the absolute confidence that, I, that the most absolute confidence I could have in standing here that this line of reasoning is, is in error. But it goes like this. You look at Jesus and you look at his life and you conclude that he, 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 never, he never worried about the sin of people because he just healed everybody. He healed this person, and he didn't address their sin, and he healed that person, and he never addressed their sin. He never questioned them about their sin. You could say that's true. Can you imagine how short our gospel accounts would be if Jesus' approach to ministry was, man, I have some healing I'd love to do, but I can't find anybody who's worthy of it. I'm walking around down here, Father, and they're all sinners. I can't, can't find anybody to heal. can't find anybody who's not a sinner. Jesus never used our sinfulness as a filter to decide who he would and wouldn't heal. So to take the line of reasoning like he, he never held their sin against him before he healed them, is an erroneous way of thinking. He healed us even in our broken state. He embraced the sinners. Yes, he went, he went to eat with sinners. That was a cr criticism against him. He dined with sinners. Why? Because he wanted to bring God's redemptive love to them. But he never endorsed their sin. Never. The most clear and concise illustration of this is in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Read it. You'll find out that what I'm telling you is true. The 8th chapter of John starts out with a narrative in which there was a woman caught in the very act of adultery who was brought to Jesus. The, the, the religious leaders wanted to find out if he would agree to put her to death by stoning. He wouldn't. He dismissed all of them. When they were all gone, she looked up, wanted to know where they all went. There's nobody left to condemn you. And Jesus' words to her in parting were, then neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. What we would like to have heard from Jesus is, then neither do I condemn you, go in peace. That's not what he said. He said, go sin no more. He embraced the sinner. He never endorsed the sin. Never. The love of Christ is redemptive. It saves us from our sin. It does, not, it does not consent to it. So you see, friends, this, this calling we have to be in the world but not of the world insists that we take seriously our obedience to the Holy Spirit, causing us to walk in righteousness. Because we know, as we said last week, we're called to go into the world. We are ambassadors to the world for Jesus Christ. We can't be ambassadors without going into the world. But at the same time, we recognize that when we step into the world, 
There is that force of the world that perfectly resonates with the desires of the flesh. The two have the same thing in common, they have the same goal, and they're going to start working together. And our only hope of being able to stand out against that is by the Holy Spirit infusing us and enabling us to walk in power so that we can walk in the world without resembling the world and its ways. We are called to be different. And I pray by the mercy of God that his people in Jesus Christ will be known to be different and not of the world. Let's pray together. Father, it's an overwhelming, and yet it's a beautiful calling that you give us to be representatives of your kingdom. And we would confess to you, Lord, that we don't deserve it, and Father, we fail so frequently. But I pray, Father, that you would... um, Just help us to look at our ways and and maybe help us to examine those ways that we've really compromised. Uh, Your righteousness, we've compromised our calling. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to just, just take seriously what it means to be your representative and, and help us, Father. We, we trust your power. We trust your power, the power of your Holy Spirit to to transform us and to help us and to enable us to walk and and to represent you in the world as as truly that people would see us and they would see Christ. And and Lord, we want that because we want people to be able to see you for, for who you are, holy and beautiful and righteous. So Lord, accomplish that through us, that we might be found to be faithful and to serve you well, and that Christ would become to be given glory and praise in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.